and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we take a diverse look at cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have new stories, including new models from Volkswagen and Subaru, and we speak to four industry figures about a range of subjects, including Jaguar looking to the future. Australia's foremost road research organisation talks about roads that will never completely fall apart. An interesting development with hydrogen cars and some details on Subaru's new Outback. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get into it. Let's start with the news. Volkswagen Australia has just launched a makeover of the sixth generation of their transporter and multivan range. This is the latest version that has evolved from their Type 2 vehicle platform, first released in 1950, which became widely known as the Combi. The sixth major generation was first released in 2016. This model is now called the T6.1. This range of vehicles exudes versatility with the different model variants being transporter van, front seats and a big load area, crew van, two rows of seats and a good cargo area, cab chassis, a single or dual cab ute with an aluminium tray, multivan, a people mover, caravel, a long wheelbase people mover, and California, a camper van. Safety is the most significant aspect of the upgrade, with features such as front assist with city emergency brake and crosswind assist. The Overdrive program thinks that station wagons have been unfairly overshadowed by SUVs. As a further step away from the rough and tough four-wheel drive image, companies are now starting to call their most car-like SUVs crossovers. Subaru has been a long-term player in this area with all-wheel drives that don't look bulky. They have just released their latest Outback wagon. Officially classified as a large SUV, it has good ground clearance without looking like you have to climb into it like a tractor. Their petrol 2.5-litre engine is said to be 90% upgraded, but there's no six-cylinder, no diesel and no hybrid. There is a revised CVT gearbox. It can now tow two tons. Their proprietary EyeSight safety system has lane centering and autonomous emergency steering. And it is competitively priced, starting at $40,000 and reaching nearly $48,000 plus on-roads. Jaguar gained a good deal of mainstream media coverage when they just announced that their new models would be all-electric by 2025. While electric vehicles are, understandably, the flavour of the moment, Jaguar also announced some other things. The first all-electric Land Rover model in 2024, the whole company to be net zero carbon by 2039, and they are developing hydrogen vehicles. James Scrimshaw, the PR manager for Jaguar Australia, reflects on this development arising in the UK. Clean hydrogen fuel cell power is being developed at the moment, and we've been working on this for a little while, something we haven't spoken about yet. The development's underway, and we'll have prototypes on the UK roads within the next 12 months across, we can't say 
So we're definitely introducing that because the aim is to be zero tailpipe emission free in the future. Michael Caltabiano is the Chief Executive Officer of ARRB, the preeminent road research organisation in Australia. He has the top management job and he has been a politician, but he also has a degree and experience in engineering. The pub test vision of maintaining roads is rebuild them when you can no longer patch them up. But Michael has a better idea. What the future is all about is designing these perpetual pavements never have to be dug out and replaced because nothing annoys the community more than road closures and years of construction on existing pavements replacing them. All you need to do is just replace the surfacing. So that is what our expertise in Arvin and our design teams in our pavement design section can do today is design perpetual pavements and we're doing that in a couple of states in Australia right now. Opposition to autonomous vehicles has focused on concerns that they will be mainly for the decadent joy of private motorists, thus increasing traffic volumes. But going anywhere, anytime, in robotic driving mode is a long way off. Mobility and freight services over well-defined routes may be the first major step. Toyota is developing an e-pallet autonomous electric vehicle service to provide on-demand transport facilities in the early 2020s. This will be trialled at Toyota's Woven City, a prototype city being built in the foothills of Mount Fuji in Japan. This real-world testing will pave the way for commercial operation in the next few years to deliver goods, services and mobility and mobility to people when needed. It might still be used for private, mechanically chauffeured trips, especially with an ageing population, but shared vehicles and moving freight will be a great benefit to the community. And that has been the news. In early 2018, Toyota moved its Hilux range up market with the introduction of the Rogue and the Rugged X. The Rogue is meant to compete with the comfort of an SUV with the practicality of a dual cab ute. Now with 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres, the 2020 upgraded Rogue boasts 3.5 tonne towing capacity, revised suspension and power steering, as well as a recalibrated six-speed auto transmission, all of which are welcome improvements. Comfort features include leather heated front seats, larger 8-inch centre screen display, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and a premium JBL 9-speaker sound system. The tub is lined with marine-grade carpet, and a local innovation, an electric retractable cover provides better sealing from the elements. Even though the Rogue is well equipped with safety features through the Toyota Safety Sense system, it still somehow inexplicably misses out on blind spot indicators. Priced from $68,990 plus the usual costs, the Hilux Rogue provides a stylish addition to the range and competes at the premium end of the dual cab segment. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia. Michael Caltabiano is the Chief Executive Officer of ARRB. Now, that's the preeminent road research organisation in Australia. He has been a politician, but he has also got a degree and experience in engineering. Now, whenever I visit ARRB, Michael has always chatted while showing me around the laboratories. We never sit in an office or a meeting room. I wanted to talk to someone in his organisation about what makes a good road and the technical reasons why there can be problems, and of course, how does that affect users? I think his eyes lit up. This was a subject that he himself had a passion for and an extensive understanding of the issues. So, consequently, he was more than happy to have the chat. G'day, Michael. 
How are you, David? It's lovely to be with you again. Very well, thank you. Uh, this I hope this interview is uh, not so much a task as a joyful opportunity. Oh, indeed it is. Uh, roads have been a passion of mine ever since graduating way back in the mid-1980s, and uh, we've now morphed into a mobility-based business at ARRB, the National Transport Research Organisation, and really integrating all modes, uh, providing a community with a different level of access to mobility for the future. Do you think we've moved away from just uh, uh, just technology or to, uh, a strong focus on technology and a better understanding of people and where and why they move and how we can suit that a, a, a demand side a bit more than a supply side? That is the direction of the future, David. I mean, behaviours, why people do what they do when they interact with a transportation system um, is something that we've at Arbath, very focused on. We have actually got psychologists within the business unpacking those stories and journeys, why people want to do what they want to do, so that we can enable those journeys. So as a community and as a society, we should be enabling those mobility journeys. We should be ensuring that people can get to where they want to get to in the cheapest, most efficient way possible. Quite often we just average out a perception and even perhaps even with big data, a lot of numbers, but we get to an average without understanding nuances? Oh, absolutely true. And the future is the linking of big data with the understanding of human behaviours and then the technology, which is what Arv specialises in, the technology to take us on the journey, whether it's how to build the new infrastructure network, how do we build smarter, better, more efficient roads, bridges, how do we enable the vehicles of the future that we can't quite define today? How do we enable them to use what will be mobility corridors of the future? We can't always define. We sometimes think we try and predict the future, yet being flexible to change, is that one of the core skills that we must Im implant not only with our technical people but with our broader public discussions? We are indeed on that journey, David, and that is you know, the world of uncertainty, the world of constant change that 2021 um, delivers for us. And probably for the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to be moving through this new world of constant change. You talked about different seals. When I road test a car, I go out into the country and go on to the coarser type of seal to it. What, what's the difference there between the nice smooth stuff that tends to be in urban areas and the more coarser type of seal out in more country areas? And you've described exactly what the community feels. So in an, in an urban area right across Australia, we use asphalt pavements, which are thicknesses of a blend of stone and bitumen put together and laid through a paver and rolled to produce a very smooth but skid-resistant surface. In rural and regional Australia, they can't afford the $25 to $30 a square metre for, for asphalt. They can afford a $2.50 to $3 a square metre bitumen seal, which is two millimetres of bitumen sprayed on top of a granular pavement, and then stone chippings put on top of those, embedded into that hot bitumen when it's laid. And that covers more than 80% of the entire Australian network. So most of our network is, in fact, a chip seal. Australia is, you mentioned it before, Australia is one of the leading proponents for smart pavements, fit for purpose, delivering high-quality roads to a massive country. We've got 
600,000 kilometres of road network in this country. And, you know, the smart road engineers of the past and the current and the future were are tasked with maintaining, building and looking after what is Australia's biggest single asset. Do we put down concrete much now? Is that a structure that we used much before? Because there used to be, a bit like only over longer distances, the Roman blocks, there was a, used to be a bit of differential settlements, I think, sometimes. Is concrete still a major part of our roads? No, concrete is not used extensively in Australia. In fact, New South Wales is almost the only state. There are little bits of projects happening in South Australia and a little bit of historical concrete in Victoria, but New South Wales is the only state that's laying concrete roads at the moment. And the rest of the country, in fact, the rest of the world has moved away from concrete pavements because they have a defined end of life. I talked before about perpetual pavements. Um, concrete pavements are not perpetual pavements, and they're not ina- they cannot be enabled to be smart pavements. The future is all about how do we enable the surfacing of a road to talk to a car? How do we change the way in which we manufacture that surfacing to emit signals, to have nanoparticles embedded, to change the white line structures? Once you have a concrete pavement, you can't change the surfacing. So they're not enabled for the future. Could that be something like guided busways or things that uh, we might embed in the road, something that has a new meaning, has a new uh, function? Well, that's what a flexible pavement does, and flexible both in structure and in nature of its use is is the, the trend globally and has been for the last 30 years globally to enable the future engineering workforce in the infrastructure world and the psychologists who are understanding what people need in the infrastructure world to allow those changes to occur. And, and we're already seeing them now um, where we have solar panels built into our road system, where we have charging lanes, where we're embedding um, the charging of future electric vehicles through induction in dedicated lanes. All of that research is going on right now globally, and we will see that emerge in the next 10 years in Australia. And we don't have to change the substructure for that. We just merely have to put the icing on the cake, the different icing on the cake. That's right, and you can do that with a flexible pavement, and you you can't do that with a rigid pavement or a concrete pavement. Michael, thank you for your time and your passion and your understanding and your way of explaining the ideas of the complexity yet the achievable things that are behind our road building. Thanks again for your time. Absolute pleasure, David. Look forward to our next um, conversation. And that's Michael Caltabiano, the Chief Executive Officer of ARRB, the Road Research Organisation, well accepted part of the Australian system. You're listening to Overdrive. In our news, we noted that Subaru had launched its latest Outback model in Australia. It's Subaru's biggest SUV, but not the rugged, mammoth-sized vehicles that are categorised as large SUVs by the authorities. I chatted to David Rowley, the National Corporate Affairs Manager for Subaru in Australia. I think the station wagon has been somewhat overshadowed by SUVs. Mm. Is it fair to say that Subaru really has 
a, one, a good balance between what is really a good sedan station wagon with all-wheel drive capabilities and a bit of uh, ground clearance in the outback? I think that's a very fair observation, David. Uh, maybe people have forgotten that we claimed the high ground in 1996 when Mark One Outback was launched, uh, and we claim to this day that it was the original crossover vehicle, which um, by that very name suggests that it's a combination of wagon and SUV. And in fact, with this sixth generation one that we've just launched, uh, it's it's really um, a great combo of all-wheel drive, off-road ability, but with a, a somewhat luxurious interior, probably the best appointed Outback we've ever had. The category you're in, which is large SUVs, a lot of those in there, would you see as your direct competitors? Because a lot of them are, are pretty macho sort of four-wheel drive derivatives. Yes. Well, good good point, David. We wouldn't actually consider a lot of those as our competitors. We don't get to choose what category our vehicle appears in. <laughs> the size of our vehicle would probably more honestly see it described as more of a, a mid-size SUV, not, not a large SUV. Um, but we're happy to sit on the fence, whether it's with the crossover tag or the category that it appears in. Hmm. Uh, the new one, much better? Of course it is, David, many <laughs> times better. Um, look, <laughs> as you would expect me to say, but um, let me hopefully underline that. <laughs> let me hopefully underline that argument by, I mean, there, there are many aspects that are enhanced in the car, David. It's, uh, for example, the engine's 7% more powerful, 4.2% more torque. It's got direct injection, which it hasn't had previously. 80% of the, um, the the continuously variable transmission, the structural parts are improved for um, better driving performance. It's got Outback's best ever towing capacity of 2,000 Ks. And when you look at that in the context of the fact that we had in the previous generation uh, 3.6 litre offerings and diesel offerings, that's uh, quite, quite an impressive achievement and we can see it appealing to uh, a lot of new buyers on that basis. But in, inside as well, I mean, there's a huge 11.6-inch uh, uh, high-def, uh, we, we call it a centre information display, um, which offers all sorts of infotainment options. Um, and more importantly, probably on the safety side, the, the EyeSight system, which is now in its fourth generation in Outback and offers um, a variety of new features too, including things like lane centering and autonomous emergency steering. So, I, I mean, I could list things till, you're, uh, till you fall asleep, David, but um, we think that collectively these things really demonstrate that the car has um, achieved a, a, a whole new level of specification. The range is somewhat... Um, well, not smaller, but we've, we, we've got three variants this time around, but more comprehensively specified than ever. So in terms of the luxury element, um, it's right up there. And, and to your original point about the difference between SUVs and wagons, it really does um, take on the best of both uh, those worlds. Uh, and offering a, a very luxurious and, and premium solution.
No six-cylinder, no diesel, no hybrid. Is that a rationalisation of your uh, product lineup? Is it uh, an acceptance, for example, that perhaps diesel is declining in its uh, public acceptance? What is pushing that decisions to go down to just the petrol engine? Well, Subaru Corporation in Japan made the decision not to proceed any further with diesels or with six-cylinder offerings. And in our experience, using the benefit of uh, what we've achieved with the new generation Forester, for example, we launched that with a single engine option, the 2.5 litre, of which the new Outback engine is a variation. And yet that car has gone on to achieve a whole new level of sales success. So it, it does give us confidence that people, yes, they're, they're accepting of the one engine choice for now at least. Um, and it, it, there are lots of other factors that go into that purchase decision. It, it doesn't just come mm. down to power and torque. And, and again, people have more consideration these days of uh, efficiency and economy as well. And that was David Rowley, the National Corporate Affairs Manager for Subaru in Australia, who is a respected figure in the industry and has a passion for his products. You're listening to Overdrive. Honda upgraded their popular CRV range late in 2020, and the LX all wheel drive model is the top of the range. It comes with a 1.5 litre VTEC turbo engine producing 140 kilowatts and 240 newton metres. Driving through a CVT to a part-time all-wheel drive system. Think of the all-wheel drive as an added safety feature rather than more adventurous pursuits. However, the LX drives nicely and the 1.5 litre is both willing and economical. With the recent upgrade, the LX now includes heated leather front seats electronically adjusted for the driver, 7-inch audio display, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, hands-free power tailgate, wireless phone charging, dual-zone climate air conditioning and 19-inch alloy wheels. With a 5-star ANCAP safety rating, the CRV is equipped with the Honda Sensing Package of Advanced Safety and Driver Assist Technologies. As a five-seat model, the LX version is cavernous, seating five in comfort, and I can fit easily in the back seats. It's packed with all the little goodies people want at a price of 47490 plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. Over the past couple of weeks, we have discussed current ideas about hydrogen fuel cells for transport. But things are moving fast. One possible area of development is to store hydrogen in a compound, which packs together more tightly and then release the hydrogen component when you need it. The Fraunhofer Institute of Manufacturing Technology and Advanced Materials say they have developed a magnesium-based paste that is stored in a cartridge and that, they say, could power small vehicles or even drones. Where are we with this type of solution? Scott Nagar, Hyundai Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations, is passionately involved in this issue. We had a chat about how it works. Scott, the thing about hydrogen is that when it floats free and just hydrogen atoms, it's a case that it takes up a lot of space for the amount of energy it gives. Is that the problem? That is the problem, and that's why in motor vehicles, when we have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, we need to pressurise the hydrogen to about 10,000 PSI or 700 bar to run those. And that gives us the amount of energy in the tank we need to drive as far as a normal car would drive. So in the Hyundai Nexo, that's 666 kilometres is the real world range. 
and that's on 6.3 kilos of hydrogen. So that means you need a very strong container because you've got such high pressures. The tanks we use are carbon fibre tanks. They're a plastic-lined carbon fibre vessel that can hold hydrogen at that, that, that 10,000 psi or 700 bar. I'm quite comfortable with that, but of course it just makes it rather cumbersome. There is a possibility if hydrogen combines with another element and forms a molecule, it can pack it in better. Are there examples of that? Speaking to people in the industry, there, there are thousands of different examples of that, and they're called metal hydride. So it's having a metal or some kind of a substance inside a tank that actually attracts the hydrogen to it. And hydrides are basically used for storing hydrogen because they've good, got good binding properties. The problem is you need to cool the hydrogen down for it to um, bind to those hydrides in the tank. And to get it out, you need to actually heat the tanks up or heat the hydrogen to get it out. And usually that's roughly around 120 degrees Celsius to get that hydrogen released from those hydrides. So it takes both a, a difficult situation but also energy to do that to get it to work. It's there but you've got to get it out. That's correct. I mean, it's, it's good technology. It's around. It's, it's good for storing on site. Uh, it may be good for moving hydrogen around in trucks. At the moment in Australia, we have hydrogen tankers that go around the country. Uh, they've been doing it for a, a lot of years. And there's generally about 200 bar um, that those hydrogen trucks have got the hydrogen stored in them. So we think about what hydrogen is used for. It's made for um, manufacturing of steel and glass and food and fats and peanut butter. We've been shipping hydrogen around Australia for a very, very long time, but we're not moving a whole lot of that product around. Uh, you're basically moving steel around. So there's other ways of uh, absorbing or containing more hydrogen in the same package and then shipping it around. See, even if you had a pipe, if you just had hydrogen, you'd have to have a much bigger pipe. I've heard the expression liquid hydrogen. What's that? Yeah, liquid hydrogen, it's when you... Um, cool the hydrogen down i think it's minus 253 degrees well that's the boiling point of hydrogen so it's getting it very cold and then having it as a liquid so that it's really cryogenic um, at that point or cryogenic hydrogen okay that brings in a whole different element altogether and, and we don't have any in australia from what i understand i know there's a, a liquefier coming to australia now as part of the uh, latrobe valley project the one with kawasaki going to move hydrogen from Australia uh, into Japan but apart from that we don't have any liquid hydrogen here it's not uncommon in the US and I know there's some in Europe but not a whole lot but it it is a way of doing it it's been around for a long time but I suppose the best way and the most cost effective way at the moment is moving it as a gas. What sort of distance could a large truck travel if it was hydrogen powered with a reasonable application of tanks on the back? We've got trucks on the road now in Europe so the, the Hyundai Accent is, is on the road uh, got to start all well, the first delivery started uh, late last year that truck holds about 35 kilos of hydrogen at half pressure at 350 bar and that truck's doing about 500 kilometers now those trucks we can have the full pressure tanks that are used in vehicles and that just means that the hydrogen stations need to compress higher and also um, pre-cool the hydrogen before it goes into the into the, the trucks and it's more it means that stations are more expensive so as a rule of thumb, any kind of heavy vehicle, whether it be truck, train, tram or ferry, will be using 350 bar pressure hydrogen now and vehicles being uh, the Hyundai Nexo, the Toyota Mirai, the Honda Clarity and others will be using full pressure 700 bar. But in the future, we're going to see more and more heavy vehicles start using 700 bar hydrogen because the stations are becoming more common. You can get a lot more energy into those smaller spaces. So in, a, in the case of a truck, 
instead of having five or six 350 bar cylinders, you'd have five or six 700 bar cylinders giving you twice as much range in that truck. It just means the infrastructure is going to be a bit more expensive up front. Is it taking a lot of room on the truck? No, in our case, uh, if, if people want to jump on uh, any of the, the sites or, or Google search uh, Hyundai Accent truck, you'll see the cylinders are behind the cab, almost behind the aero wing on the cab, and there's one cylinder on top of the cab that's kind of behind the big aero wing. And those trucks are on the road now with Hyundai customers in Switzerland. So we started delivering the trucks last year. I think in total we're delivering uh, 1,500 trucks for this order uh, to a number of customers. And that's really just proving the concept that zero-emission heavy transport is here now and it does work. And there's also hydrogen trains running in Germany right now and hydrogen buses have been around for a long time. It's also, I think you were talking at another location about the possibility even for heavy shipping. That's correct. It's something that Hyundai is looking at. We're one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world, so we're looking to power our, our heavy fleets and our light fleets in hydrogen. And that was Scott Naga, Hyundai Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations. We will hear more from Scott in the weeks ahead, and the full interview that is packed with information is on our website. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Scott Nagar, David Rowley, James Scrimshaw, Michael Talcabiano and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.